Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast about improving the health and well-being of older adults. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison, practicing geriatrician and founder of the website Better Health While Aging. And this episode is going to be, again, a coronavirus special. I'm sharing the uh, coronavirus update that I provided to the members of the Helping Older Parents membership. That's a membership program that we started about a year ago, and I do live Q&A calls for them twice a month. And uh, I'd stopped doing COVID updates as part of those calls, but since we have had a lot of changes in the COVID situation over the past few weeks, uh, I did one this week, and I thought I'd post it to the podcast to share with the audience. I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to create a newer episode uh, for a while. It's been a busy time, but please stay safe, stay well. I hope the information and this update is helpful to you. Take care. Okay, hello again, everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of the Helping Older Parents Membership, and welcome to today's group coaching call. So today is Thursday, July 16th. We're right in the middle of uh, summer. Good to see you all. So what I have for today is um, I have a few very quick announcements, but then I did decide to write up a little COVID update just because things have changed so much in the last month. Um, and I've been updating myself, so I wanted to share that with you in case the recent uh, surge in cases has raised any questions for you. And then we will go into questions and answers. And um, so if you uh, wanna talk to me today and you didn't already submit your question in the group, then uh, just go ahead and put it in the Q&A box so that I can find out about it. And I'll make sure to call on you later. So COVID update. So yeah, so you know, the situation, I recorded an update on coronavirus for the Better Health uh, While Aging readership about a month ago. And at the time, the cases were at 20,000 per day. And so it was a lot better than at the peak in April, where I think we had peaked at something like 36,000 cases, definitely less than 40,000 cases per day, uh, but it wasn't zero. Um, so what's really uh, sad and distressing is that um, since that time in early June, the cases started to go up and up and up. And now we are at over 65,000 uh, per day, and several states have become hotspots. California, the state of California actually is having record numbers. They're mostly in the southern part of the state. Um, but the cases are going up in San Francisco, too, even though we don't have overall such a high caseload. Um, so, you know, the states that are especially in the news, uh, Florida right now, um, Texas, uh, Arizona. Um, so so that's, that's worrisome. And a lot of that has been an increase in younger people being uh, diagnosed. And um, what's good is they're less likely to get very severely ill and be hospitalized uh, and die. But it's still a lot of people who are sick. Um, and so the test positivity rates, one of the things that you want to be on the lookout for to understand how significant is coronavirus in my community is to follow the test positivity rate of all the people they test, how many people are coming back positive. Because ideally, if we're doing enough, um, enough testing of people in general and encouraging the testing, it should be, you know, less than five to 8%, lower is better. And it has gone up to 20%. 
uh, in some areas. Um, now that test positivity rate is something that you should be able to find for your local community. Most counties have a dashboard showing the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the test positivity rate, and many states have dashboards. So later on, I have a list of helpful resources, and I recommend everybody bookmarking the dashboard, uh, their local dashboard, so you can follow along. And the reason for that is that um, when there are more cases where you live or where your parent lives, um, even if they're mostly among the young people, it means that there's increased transmission in the community. And that becomes, uh, turns into more risk even for the people who are being careful. So even for people who are workers, whether they're essential workers in grocery stores or whether they're healthcare workers, right? Whether they're people who work in assisted living or nursing homes or come to the homes of uh, older adults, um, they're, even if they're trying to be very careful, they're at higher risk for each of us going out to the grocery store, we're at a little bit higher risk and that puts older adults at risk uh, too. So we're always going to be you know, balancing a little bit the question of how risky is this activity, should I do it? And when there's more coronavirus in our community at a certain time, everything becomes uh, riskier. Um, so if you're thinking of doing something like getting together with family for a birthday or for something like that, of course, outdoors is safer than indoors. Everybody wearing masks is safer. Not sharing, you know, food, silverware, the rest is safer. And it's even more important to take those uh, safety actions or even consider postponing the gathering if there's a lot of coronavirus in your community. Um, the other thing that comes up with this situation is that in the places that are having hotspots, even though about a month ago there, you know, the it was fairly easy to get a test, as you might remember, early on in the epidemic, uh, people couldn't get tested. There were shortages of tests. Uh, there were shortages of materials for tests. So that got better. But what we're seeing now is that when a community becomes a hotspot, they start having difficulty keeping up with testing demand. So, um, so in Arizona and in Florida, they have long lines of people waiting to be tested or they will, um, they will make testing appointments available and they'll all be snapped up within the first 15 minutes. Um, and they're also in some places experiencing shortages of hospital beds. So that's all, uh, that's all really, um, it's been so sad to me to see it uh, happen and worrisome, and hopefully it's going to turn around and get better, but it is the, the reality of what we, we are facing right now. So given that, um, so yeah, so, uh, so I think we have to find this balance as, you know, as citizens, honestly, of uh, this country, especially if we are worried about an older person we care about or particularly concerned for our own health. I think we have to find this balance between not being too sucked into the news, which can get very gloomy and depressing, but also staying reasonably aware of what is going on in part so that we can contribute to societal efforts to you know, turn things around. So, um, so right here, this is from the New York Times coronavirus trackers. So you can see the cases going up, up, up. And that means we have to think about you know, as individuals and collectively, you know, is there something I might do to help reduce this transmission or that I might do differently to protect myself or somebody that I love. Um, and so we can see the cases going up. Hopefully it will uh, you know, start to 
slow and bend down. We're hoping to see the curve go back down at some point. I'm not sure when that will be. And also, um, you know, the deaths are starting to go up as well. And what we know is that usually after people have increased activity that puts them at risk, you see the number of cases go up about one to two weeks later, and then you see the deaths go up about two to three weeks later. And so that's what we're starting to see. So hopefully we're not going to get to the same peak we had uh, in April, but um, it's still fairly sobering. So, um, so now we're, you know, we're, uh, now it's July, right? So we're, we're at a different um, time as a society and community of citizens and of health professionals than we were in April when this hit us. Um, so the question is, you know, now that we're further along, are we, are we better? Are we better at preventing coronavirus? Are we better at treating it? Um, so I thought I'd look into this for myself and to share with you. Uh, so basically, in terms of are we better, preventing coronavirus is basically based on reducing community transmission or keeping it low to the extent you can. And then in high-risk environments, such as the facilities where some older adults reside, you know, it's having extra infection control. And then there's one other element for us as individuals that prevention kind of comes down to your own state of health. Uh, because whether you get sick from coronavirus is about whether you were exposed and then whether your health, you know, if your health is better because uh, you're more rested or your health is otherwise better, you're, you know, you're more likely to fight it off and less likely to get very sick. And if you have been running yourself ragged, you're very stressed, you know, those are things that increase our susceptibility to getting sick when we are exposed. Uh, and of course, you know, life is stressful right now. And some of you are still very busy taking care of your aging parents or your other responsibility. And, you know, so sometimes it's not possible to get all the rest that we, we wish we could. But to the extent that uh, we can, that helps a little bit. Um, but to come back to uh, prevention, so reducing community transmission, you know, comes down to um, people wearing masks, you know, when they're out in the community near other people. And again, that's less about keeping you from catching it from someone and more about all of us collectively putting less of the germs we exhale into a space where other people can breathe it in because some of us are going to have coronavirus and not know it. We either haven't started developing symptoms or we think it's just a cold, allergies, and we can be unwittingly exposing people. So, um, so uh, I definitely believe that when, you know, everybody is wearing masks in indoor spaces, that helps reduce transmission, people being physically further apart, people being outside, washing hands, cleaning high contact surfaces. You know, the general principle is minimizing time indoors, breathing in what others exhale. Um, or just breathing in what others exhale, period, and that's easier to do outdoors than indoors. This is why, you know, it's positive that bars being, um, have been, uh, you know, one way that people, um, that coronavirus transmits itself more effectively. And you want to be careful with social gathering. I hate to see, tell people, you know, don't do any of them because uh, we long to spend time with people we care about. Um, but again, um, you know, especially if transmission is high where you are, can it be put off? And if you do choose to do it, can you do it as carefully and safely as possible outside, further away, people wearing masks if possible, et cetera. Um, and then facilities, I think, have, you know, on average gone better at preventing COVID because initially they had kind of no idea what they were doing. It was very hard to get supplies. And now, you know, most facilities have figured out a system, a protocol. So if you have a loved one in an assisted living or a nursing home, 
you know, probably they have uh, a whole system. Now, the question is, how are they going to balance isolation versus risk reduction? Before this, you know, recent surge started, there was a lot of talk about, you know, restoring visitation. And how could we do that? Because uh, coronavirus is going to be a risk um, until there's a vaccine widely available, which is going to be probably another year. And it doesn't feel tolerable to us to leave um, older adults or really any of us in significant isolation for all that time. So, um, so uh, if you have your parent in a facility, you know, checking in with them about um, what they're doing right now is, you know, something to uh, to follow on. And then. Um, I think, you know, we know things that can help, but the United States in particular, um, we're doing worse than other developed countries because right now we're struggling with implementing the interventions uh, when the community transmission goes up. So a lot of places are having trouble with the, you know, tracing the contacts of people. And also when you have a lot of cases, it becomes infeasible um, and um, people don't always cooperate with public health recommendations. Uh, so. I think we're a little bit better at preventing it, but the recent surge has has been sobering. So I think you know the focus now is for doing what we can to turn it around, and then hopefully we will learn from this and be able to keep the numbers lower once we get them back down. Because right now they're quite low in many parts of Europe, even though people are out, you know, you know, socializing and doing things. And it would just be great for us to get there as a country uh, as well, um, in part because that would make it safer for you know, older adults and anyone who's at risk to, you know, be out of it, right? Which I would really like to see happen. Excuse me. Sorry, little interruption from one of my children who forgot that I said no interruptions right now, but he'll go find his dad. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, okay. Um, now, are we better at treating coronavirus? You know, that was another question that came up for me that I thought you might be asking about. So uh, we have learned so much about this virus and how it makes people sick um, since March. And uh, when I spent some time reviewing it, I still came to the conclusion that even though we've learned a lot, it's not clear to me that we have better ways of treating frail older adults with coronavirus. Um, so right now the treatments, so there's a lot of uh, promising uh, research, there's a lot better understanding of um, all the complex different ways that coronavirus can affect the body and create complications, especially in people who are, are hospitalized. But in terms of, you know, what we do differently or what we do better, um, you know, here's what, what I found out. So, so first of all, we're still dividing coronavirus into basically, you know, Mild, um, and mild in medical terms here means you're not sick enough to be hospitalized. So basically, you don't have a particularly low blood oxygen level, uh, or you're not otherwise looking extremely ill and unwell. You might still feel terrible, like, you know, um, when you're, you're sick with it and, and be home for a while. So, uh, so when it's considered, you know, mild and appropriate for treatment, uh, at home, and that's, um, and that's what most people experience with coronavirus is a mild case, you know, it's supportive. Um, so maybe you take some medication for fevers or aches, you rest, 
you know, you sleep, you of course, you know, stay away from other people so you don't get them sick. And the idea is to really monitor for uh, what we call clinical deteriorations, for signs that somebody is starting to become sick enough that they should be hospitalized. One of the main criteria is to have a blood oxygen level less than 94. So, um, so uh, if you or your family have access to a home pulse oximeter, one of those little devices that you put on the finger. I have mine on my desk, but I think I put it away. Um, to, to see that can help with the remote monitoring, because again, if you can get the, uh, you know, some of the monitoring via telemedicine visits, that can be more convenient. There are no particular treatments recommended for prevention or treatment of mild coronavirus. So no particular medications or treatments. Uh, and then there's been a lot of interest in what they call proning. So that means putting people face down uh, to help with their breathing and breathing exercises. It's not clear if it helps when people have mild coronavirus. Um, so that's what we have for outpatient care. And then what about for hospital care? So many hospitals, uh, if they've had any number of cases, have become more practiced at taking care of coronavirus patients. So they first of all have developed their protocols for where they place patients who might have coronavirus, for how the staff are putting on and off their personal protective equipment. Um, you know, the cloth masks that we're all supposed to, you know, masks that are recommended for us to wear out in public, especially in indoor spaces, those are not considered personal protective equipment because they don't meaningfully protect you from catching it from other people. Um, but in hospital environments or in nursing home environments, you know, they, they are supposed to wear protective equipment and they, you know, they have face shields, they have like masks that are tighter, they have gowns. Uh, so they've all become more practiced at, um, at doing that, at uh, uh, decontaminating the spaces, at monitoring people, at having a sense of who's likely to uh, decompensate. Uh, they have worked a lot on um, when people are short of breath, instead of intubating them relatively quickly, on turning them over, again, proning them to see uh, if, if that will help. So I think, I think that's good. I think that's good for the population in general. And so the benefits uh, right now of hospital care, you know, one, you get closer monitoring. So for somebody who's sick and seems uh, once people start having especially a lower blood oxygen level, um, they could potentially crash uh, and become very sick or short of breath um, or critically ill fairly quickly. So in the hospital, you have closer monitoring and you're closer to people who can intervene quickly if that happens. Uh, we've also discovered that coronavirus often does affect the clotting and blood vessels. Um, so right now the recommendation is for, unless there's a contraindication, a reason why it would be unusually dangerous to do so, it is recommended to uh, do uh, what we call um, blood clot prophylaxis. They basically give you like low doses of blood thinners for people who are in the hospital to reduce the risk of developing a clot. Um, hospitals uh, also can provide high flow oxygen. Now, nursing homes can usually provide regular flow oxygen for people who just need a little extra oxygen, but there are special high flow systems that are available in hospitals. And then, of course, critical care units with ventilators, machines to breathe for people. Um, uh, in general, now in places that are experiencing a surge, they're, you know, they're experiencing shortages of critical care beds and, and ventilators, but normally that uh, should be available. And then in the hospital is also where you can get access to medications that might be beneficial. So 
I looked over uh, the um, the clinical resources today. There are really two right now that are you know recommended for patients who are hospitalized and have low blood oxygen levels and seem sick enough. One is this antiviral remdesivir, and the other one is what is called a corticosteroid dexamethasone. That's actually an older drug that's been around for, for quite a while. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about those medications in a second. Um, and then the disadvantages of hospital care are you know, that the visitations are still quite limited. Um, and I will still say that it's really unclear to me how likely frail older adults are to benefit from hospital care. So we've learned all these things, and what we don't know yet is um, are we reducing, <clears throat> you know, are we reducing mortality rates when people are sick enough to be hospitalized? And is that happening for people who are frailer uh, and older? And it's not, it's not clear yet that uh, it is because in those studies for the remdesivir and the dexamethasone, there seemed to be more of a benefit in people who were younger, probably because they were more likely to, um, uh, sorry. Sorry, um, I'm sorry, everyone, just one second. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, something had to be gotten out of a noisy desk there. Okay. Um, so about those uh, hospital treatments, the medications. So remdesivir, you know, the quote from up to date, and I'm going to share a link. They actually have all their resources available. All their resources about coronavirus are available to um, publicly. Right now, usually they're just for paid clinicians who are subscribers. So I can show you a link to that later. Um, so, uh, and I saw this, you know, the New York Times just ran something with like, we're gonna, you know, rate the effectiveness of coronavirus treatments. And they gave that one a sort of strong something recommendation. But I looked and it's just that it had a randomized trial and so it has better data. But the actual benefit uh, is still seems kind of small to me. So, <laughs> In the randomized trial, you know, the, the conclusion of the up-to-date authors was, well, there's probably some little benefit, but whether it reduces mortality remains uncertain. And also, the average age of people in the trial was 59, um, plus or minus 15 years. So that means that 95% of them fell in the age range of 59 minus 15 years and 59 plus 15 years. So 59 plus 15 is 74. So that means that, again, we don't really have much information on what about people who, you know, many of your parents are older than 75. A lot of our members have parents in their late 80s or, or 90s. Um, so, uh, so we really, you know, so first of all, the effect was small. And second of all, we don't even know if it would have that same effect in people who are much older or frailer. And then dexamethasone, um, the trial was unpublished. It was in the UK. The average age of people was 66. It did seem to have more effect in people with severe illness. It's not recommended for prevention or mild COVID. So neither of these are recommended for mild uh, COVID. They really come into consideration if people are sick enough to be hospitalized. And then there are, are a number of other treatments that um, are being studied, such as giving people the plasma. That's when you get antibodies from people who have recovered. Um, 
So that, that's what's available right now in the hospital. So, you know, I think overall we're making progress as, you know, uh, as healthcare professionals, but in practical terms, you know, is your frail older parent, you know, now going to likely to do better with their COVID treatment in the hospital compared to March when we knew, you know, almost nothing? Um, I think the hospital will be better organized about how to deal with this condition and manage their PPE and whether the actual care is more likely to bring the results that your parent wants for them or that you want for them is not at all clear to me that it's going to be better. So, um, and I asked a geriatrician friend of mine who's in research, like, where is the sort of research on, you know, how we can better treat people who are over 75? And she said it's, you know, she doesn't think it's really being collected, which I think is kind of shocking to me because they're collecting, you know, data on pediatric patients and pregnant women. And I think older adults are just equally important. They're the ones who are most likely to get quite sick from this and, you know, be hospitalized and, and fall very ill. But there it is. Um, so the bottom line, um, so I want you to realize that even though we've made progress, you know, for people of all ages, um, we don't really have proven effective treatments for coronavirus. In the hospital, you get a higher level of supportive care in that, you know, we have machines that can even breathe for people if they get that sick. Um, and we have a lot of monitoring and, you know, they'll give you that, uh, the low dose anticoagulation to try to reduce your risk of clots. And as complications come up, they will try to treat them. But basically in the hospital, they basically support you while your body tries to fight off, uh, tries to fight off the virus. And those medications might make a little bit of difference for some people who are severely ill. And we don't know if they make that same bit of difference in people who are quite old or frail. Um, and uh, in general, the older, frailer you are, the less likely you are to survive the ventilator. So if it comes to the point where somebody needs to be intubated, I would say it's still likely a long shot to get past it. And it's important to also know that anyone, and this is again, people of all ages, um, you know, even people who are 50 and quite healthy, when they've been on the ventilator for two, three weeks and they survive, they are extremely debilitated afterwards and they will need months of rehabilitation. So. This is a little bit sad, and why do I bring it up? I bring it up because especially with coronavirus surging, you know, it is important to have these conversations of, you know, um, with, uh, for ourselves and with people we love to talk about, you know, if you were to get quite sick from coronavirus, if I were to get quite sick from coronavirus, you know, here's what I think that, you know, would be my preferences for how I would be treated. And we can only make informed choices about our preferences and share them with others if we actually, you know, have reasonable information about the likely benefits versus burdens of a certain treatment course. So it's not unreasonable for a frail older person who's in the nursing home to, you know, express a preference or for their family to choose on their behalf to be hospitalized or even to be intubated if the person can't breathe otherwise. It's just important to realize um, that right now we don't yet have like medications that, you know, I think really move, have been shown to really move the needle for frail older people. And it's still kind of a long shot. Um, it's certainly a very long shot to get past it and recover to your previous level of, you know, mobility and uh, mental function. So something to, uh, to keep in mind. Um, so I think right now, you know, advanced planning remains really important. Uh, you know, and it's really planning for like, not just if you get coronavirus, but if you get coronavirus and your, you know, blood oxygen level starts to go down, right? Um, it's thinking about the implications of going to the hospital and then within the hospital, whether, 
um, you would want the hospital team to, you know, try intubation um, or to intubate. And, you know, we can also, um, it's on many of the POLST forms. So those are the physician orders for life-sustaining care. It's called MOLST, medical orders for life-sustaining care in New York uh, or most in some um, other states. You know, but on our form in California, there is the option for, you know, a trial of uh, life-supporting care, which means, you know, try it for a bit, and if the odds aren't looking good after a certain period of time, it's okay to, to let it go. Um, you know, those are possibilities. Um, so you may be wondering if someone has severe coronavirus and they aren't going to be hospitalized or intubated, what's the alternative? The alternative is palliation of the symptoms, so treatment of the uncomfortable symptoms with medication, medication to relieve shortness of breath and pain, which um, can be done uh, in the context of hospice if it's available and easy to enroll where you are, or can be potentially prescribed by medications, uh, excuse me, prescribed by um, providers, other uh, doctors. Um, so, uh, so if you haven't had this conversation, uh, I'm still encouraging people to have these conversations. And if your family or your parents whoever's, you know, driving the, the primary decision maker decides to try to avoid hospitalization, I think it's a good idea to let your primary providers know. And this is also something that you can ask primary care doctors to do with you, is to help you talk through um, this situation and to kind of inform you uh, so that you can think about it and then maybe, you know, reach uh, a thought. Um, so. Useful resources these days. Um, I recommend bookmarking your state and county's COVID dashboard. Um, so if you just look, uh, often county public health departments have them and states, they'll have a graph kind of showing um, how many cases. Um, that can be useful to just, again, be aware and get a sense of how things are in your area. Because maybe some of you are in areas where things are nice and calm and quiet, which which is great, <laughs> you know. And then uh, count your blessings and um, and uh, and if possible, do what you can to keep things that way. And then for the latest on the COVID medical uh, treatment and science, up to date has made the COVID uh, topics free. So um, somebody was asking. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, just show you all where you could find it if you were looking. Um, this is where I often, now this is written for professionals, so I, I will, you know, caveat there that it's not designed to be easy. But uh, right here, this is uptodate.com, uh, um, and it's the most widely used resource by clinicians. Uh, all the institutions and big clinics have subscriptions. Um, and so if you click over here, um, usually there are topics you have to have a subscription. And uh, in this case, uh, right here, they have all their topics right here. So for instance, outpatient management in adults, that kind of describes the latest recommendations for how people who aren't sick enough to be hospitalized um, should be taken care of. And I think also explains how to know if they should go uh, to the hospital. Um, I just looked, oh, I think I looked here actually when uh, one of the members had mentioned, and I think I didn't see it last week, but that her mom had tested positive for COVID um, and was asking how long should she isolate herself. So uh, right here, there's always a little outline in the side 
Um, so here they're telling you what they know about the epidemiology, kind of the statistics on uh, transmission. Um, but this, you know, this is where I would go to answer that member's question. Asymptomatic individuals with potential exposure, right? So if your parent tests positive and you were recently with them, you know, you can look right here and in their nerdy technical way, um, what, uh, what they say is for those who have had close contact with a patient with suspected or co confirmed COVID, they suggest self-quarantine at home for 14 days following the last exposure with maintenance of at least six feet from others and avoiding contact with individuals at high risk and twice daily temperature checks with monitoring for fever, cough, or dyspnea. The other thing that's great about UpToDate is that uh, it's generally updated often. So you can see this last updated July 15th, 2020. So they're definitely staying uh, on top of these. Uh, now you should know that there are different rules for healthcare providers who are exposed. And so that's probably what would apply to people working in the nursing home. Um, and uh, I, think they, I think that was mentioned actually in a link here that they had a link to where you could go and look up the, uh, the rules um, for healthcare providers, which ends up taking you to a page for the Centers of Disease Control. Uh, because health providers are at high risk of exposure, it's not really feasible for them to quarantine for 14 days after each one. And it comes down to like how much they were protected with the equipment and whether they're having symptoms. So that might be what happens um, for uh, people working in nursing homes or other people who might be working with, uh, with your parents. Um, so, um, so I want to make sure people knew that, that that is a spot. And then, um, oh, I should go back to my, uh, uh, my web browser share. Um, for conversations, um, and another member had posted recently about trying to have a conversation with her mother-in-law about her preferences. Mm. I think it wasn't particularly about COVID. It was just understanding her preferences in case her mother-in-law got seriously ill in general. I think this was Carolyn, whose mother-in-law is maybe 87, 88, with some uh, dementia. Theconversationproject.org is a wonderful website in general. And they have a good um, COVID talking guide. And uh, let me see. Um, which I wanted to show people quickly. So, uh, okay, so this is the conversationproject.org. They've developed talking guides to talk about what's important if you had serious illness or were facing a life-threatening illness. And so if you click here, you get their talking guide that is specific to COVID right here. And um, it, has a, uh, it has a nice sort of summary of things to know you know, about, um, about COVID, including those who survive, maybe left with disabilities, damaged lungs, deconditioning, um, and after intensive care. So that's what I was talking about a little while ago, despite weeks or months in the hospital or rehabilitation, they may not regain enough strength or function to return home. Uh, and then they have, you know, some uh, questions, you know, um, for somebody to ask themselves or talk about to their family or that you could ask your parent what would be, uh, think about what you'd want if you became seriously ill with COVID-19, what would be most important to you, what are you most worried about, what's helping you through this difficult time. Um, now, I want to say something about these questions because I see people having a little bit of trouble with their parents with this. 
If you became sick, would you prefer to stay where you live or go to the hospital? And if you chose to go to the hospital, would you want to receive intensive care? So it's not that we shouldn't ask, but what I've found is that people often have difficulty answering that question or they give conflicting answers. And um, so I think Carolyn had given an example of this that her, her mother-in-law was giving opposing messages like, shoot me if I ever get Alzheimer's, like my brother or sister, and you know, messages that signaled, I'm afraid of dying, so I want whatever medical help is available if it will keep me alive. Um, so I wanna say this kind of ambivalence is very common. And so sometimes, especially when people are having memory problems uh, or otherwise struggling with um, a question that feels difficult and emotionally charged, right? This is hard for people to think about. You know, um, another approach that I sometimes take is I would ask those questions and then say, you know, I want to make sure that I understand what you'd want if you became very sick with COVID. What I've heard you say in the past and what I've heard you say is important to you is this or that or that, you know, so I don't know. Um, uh, I then propose kind of, you know, it sounds like if you were to get very sick, it, you might prefer to stay where you are since you said that you wouldn't want to die in a hospital or, you know, be hospitalized if there was, if it wasn't likely you'd survive. So sometimes kind of proposing something to them and putting it in the frame of here's what I heard you say, here's what I understand is important to you. So it sounds like if this happened, you know, this would be a good fit for you, that puts them in the position of often being like, yes, okay. Or they might say no. <laughs> and if they say no, fine, <laughs> you know, then you propose something else. So I wanted to, um, to share that because I think when we ask, first of all, especially when people have dementia, open-ended questions are very hard. Even when people don't have dementia, open-ended questions can be hard. Now this one is kind of a, would you prefer this or would you prefer that? And people will often have difficulty because they, they feel attracted to both and fearful of both at the same time. And resolving that can be really hard if people don't have a ton of cognitive resources. Um, so that's why I wanted to say, you know, another approach is to um, take your best guess as to what would be a fit with not only their preferences, but also, you know, you may understand their health situation better than they do, right? You know, because I, I will tell you, if people are very frail and dependent, they're not likely to do well, uh, you know, if they have to go on a vent for COVID, right? Um, so, you know, we can take what we know about their preferences and goals and their health situation and propose something to them and give them a chance to affirm it or say no, in which case we can... Um, propose something else or just, you know, say they said no. And so in that case, it sounds like they, you know, we should, you know, take you to the hospital. And if they say yes, you know, fine. That, that you know, that was what they voiced to us, right? Um, so does anyone have questions about that before I move on to the questions that were submitted? Okay, so, uh, all right. Well, if questions about it come up later, just uh, let me know. And then lastly, um, if you or your parent doesn't yet have an advanced directive, I am always a, a big fan of the ones at uh, Prepare for Your Care. 
um, which uh, were developed by my colleague, Rebecca Sudore, although that's not why I recommend it. I recommend them because they're great. Um, but um, she made easy, easy to use, easy to read, but they're really easier for everybody to use. We're using them in our family, um, advanced directives that just kind of walk people in a very nice way through um, what's most important to them, what makes life worth living, and uh, it's just easy to fill out. And then um, they have them for almost all states, and it will say whether it needs to be notarized or witnesses or something like that. Okay. So um, next calls. Uh, next week, we have an evening geriatric care manager call with Linda. And then on Thursday the 30th, we have, uh, so I guess I'm not going to be doing this again for three weeks. I forgot about that. Because uh, we have a fifth Thursday, and I believe this geriatric care manager call with Michelle is going to be virtual support group. So those are the ones where everyone's face-to-face, -face, more interactive, no replay, you know, focus on uh, those who are there in real time. And with that, I'm going to go to questions and, uh, and answers. Uh, Jenny's question related to what I had been talking about is a New York State living will the same as an advanced directive. Uh, I would look at the actual document. So living will in common parlance has often referred to more the part where people explain their preferences about what they would want if they were seriously ill. Um, so, so it's the preferences part, which is important. And then there's another part, which is naming your healthcare agent who makes the decisions on your behalf. So often an advanced directive contains um, the durable power of attorney for healthcare and also some information on what the preferences are. So if uh, you or your parent has a New York State living will, I would just take a look at it. And those are the two major pieces that we want in an advanced directive, uh, naming a proxy. So we know like who has been trusted with the role of making decisions on behalf of the person who completed the form. And then what are the preferences? Okay. All right. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.